0: You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV.
1: Massimo Piliucci, it's good to see you. Hi, nice seeing you again. Um, Welcome to the Sophia audience. Uh, Why don't we do our introductions and we can get started with our topic for today. Massimo, why don't you go first?
0: I'm Massimo Piliucci, the KD
1: Irani Professor of Philosophy at the City College of New York. An author of the newly produced, just published, and wildly successful How to Be a Stoic, which we had a very nice and interesting discussion about last time. Yes. Um, I'm Daniel Kaufman. I'm a professor of philosophy at Missouri State University. I just turned in my final grades on Monday, and so now I'm, (laughs) this is why I have the generally homeless shelter sort of look about my (laughs) living space as I am committed to doing absolutely nothing for a week. <laughs> right. <laughs> Before I start good idea. getting involved in writing projects. Massimo, are you done also? Yes, that's right. Monday was the,
0: the you know exam final, final grades day and that was it. Yeah. All
1: yeah. right. Good. So we're both we've we have a spring in our step is what That's uh, right. Like <laughs> At least for a while. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. So um today we're going our ostensive subject today is uh teleological explanations in biology, but there's an ulterior motive uh, and so let me if you don't mind let me just for a second frame what I had in mind why why I wanted to talk to you about this right uh, and it is connected to all the stuff on virtue ethics that we've been doing um so it's not a secret to anybody who reads my magazine or who watches us that I'm, I'm very, I've been very influenced by Elizabeth Anscombe. Uh, and Elizabeth Anscombe wrote this very important paper in the 50s called Modern Moral Philosophy, where she um, suggests that there's a certain basic problem with contemporary moral philosophy because it is attempting to uh, talk about values and obligations without uh, in the absence of any belief in natural teleology. Uh, that there's purpose in nature, and specifically that there's a human purpose. Um, this, of course, critique was then picked up by Alistair McIntyre in perhaps a more well-known book, uh, After Virtue. Um, now, a lot of people took Anscombe to be saying, well, then let's go back and do virtue ethics again. Right. Um, but Anscombe herself warns against that, uh, the possibility of that option uh, Partly because it's not just virtue ethics that's missing in modern moral philosophy; it's also the um, what she calls the divine command element uh, of ethics that's missing. But with respect to the virtue ethics in particular, she says that, uh, and this is somewhat cryptic. But she says that uh, until we have an adequate philosophy of psychology, we should probably not talk about uh, uh, about about morals. And um, well, the sense that I get from her from reading that paper is that she doesn't think that the that, that, that the recovering some notion of teleology is going to be very easy uh, in right. a modern in a modern context, partly because modern science has largely eschewed teleological explanations um, but it also I also wonder you know and maybe we'll get into this whether the science, whether biology is even the science to where we should be looking. Or whether it's some sort of psychology to which we should be looking, or even maybe a biological psychology to which we should be looking. And so those are all the sorts of issues that I have in mind in the background to why now you have been very strong in saying, A, you're you're very strongly a virtue ethicist, so you obviously think that virtue ethics is recoverable in the modern context. Right. And you've also argued pretty strongly that Um, biology simply cannot be done without teleological explanations. And so what I want to finally get, uh, get down to is whether indeed biology really does employ teleological explanations or whether they're only sort of instrumentally teleological. And secondly, even if it does, whether we can get a sufficiently thick notion of human purpose out of it upon which to base a modern virtue ethics. So that's the ulterior motive right. behind my. So
0: be- before we get into the discussion, and I give you my uh, take
1: um, uh,
0: about about two issues. Really, there I think there are two separate issues here. Th- th- at least one is. Uh, to what extent does modern uh, biology recover a, tele- a teleological uh, you know a sense of teleology i don 't think actually it does I think it, it recovers a sense of teleonomy right not teleology so we 'll get into the distinction uh, yes. in, in, in a minute and then a separate a question in my mind i, I unlike uh, Anscombe, is is whether there is any value in either the modern approach to ethics or the virtual ethical approach of ethics independently of their two alleged uh, uh, weaknesses, which are respectively the, 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 idea of a, of a law imposed by a law giver in one, in one case, or, 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 or some kind of robust sense of teleology in the other case. I actually, I'm going to argue, um, later on that actually uh, those are their, their historical roots, but that they're actually not needed conceptually. Okay, but, great. Um, That's great. great. Right. So, so, but before we get there, you want to sort of put this in the context of Aristotle and the four causes? And all yeah, that so
1: this. there's, I mean, I think there's independent interest in the question of teleology, teleological right. explanations, and we have had a whole separate dialogue in where you, you suggest that you do think that the modern notion of causality is too thin, is too narrow. Um, and so I would like to hear you talk about Maybe a little bit about the four causes and where they went. We did this. We did this little dialogue on this, but very quickly, and then spend the bulk of it on um, to what extent we we have to engage purposes and explanations in modern biology.
0: Right. So what, why don't we give the classic example of um, a statue um, as to explain the difference between the four causes? So Aristotle famously gave a classification of four. Aristotle was famously into classifications. He really loved taxonomy. Yeah. You know, this, the four causes, the 12 virtues, there's, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, He had a sort of systematic mind, uh, which actually made him a very good early biologist when he went and spent a lot of time doing field work, uh, which many people don't appreciate. Uh, he actually did. But in terms of causes, first of all, the word "cause" here is kind of weird because I think that it's fair to say that Aristotle did not mean what we mean today by cause. Certainly not post Hume. Uh, he actually meant something more akin, I think, to what we mean by explanation. Yes. Uh, right. So, so these are ex- different four different kinds of explanations uh, of whatever you want to to account for, and and they are not mutual. They're not meant to be mutually exclusive. They're different aspects of a fuller explanation. So. Yeah, uh, you know, typically when I introduce that to my students in, in intro philosophy, uh, I use the classic example of a statue or a sculptor that is that is you know uh, getting a statue basically out of a of a piece of marble an initially undifferentiated piece of marble, right? So the idea is this: there are four causes. You know, the formal cause, the final cause, the efficient cause, and the material cause. And uh, the efficient cause. Well, let's start with the with the material cause. Actually, the material cause is the marble. Or whatever uh, thing the statue is eventually going to be made of let's let's say marble in, the, in this case um, the efficient cause is whatever process gets from the original undifferentiated state to the final state, so in this case the sculptor himself is right. the efficient cause uh, the formal cause is essentially what it is that it, the statue is supposed to look like, right? It starts out as an unfinished piece of marble, but it's supposed to look like something like a polit- famous politician, for instance, or a philosopher right. or whatever it is. And the final cause is the reason why all of this is happening. Uh, for instance, because the city of Athens uh, asked the sculptor to, uh, to produce the statue in order to uh, honor a particular politician or a particular f- philosopher, Right? So those are the four causes. Now, in um, modern science uh, often people say that uh, we basically retain the material causes right we do retain the efficient causes, but the both formal and final causes are gone uh, and particularly uh, particularly with Darwin uh, people say oh there's no final purpose there's no purpose to the whole thing it's just uh, there's just the appearance of of purpose right. so the my eyes for instance have uh, do have you? You can reasonably say that they have a function, uh, and that function is to see. Or my heart has a function. The function is not to make noise, but uh, uh, even though it does also make noise, but to pump blood and so on and so forth. Right. But those functions don't require a final cause, meaning they don't require a, some kind of forethought uh, or, or, or plan a, about the, 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 what's about to happen. And that's what most people mean by teleology. So a teleological Take on things is the idea that there is a purpose, that something, that that there is a plan uh, going on that is unfolding that that um, that the other causes help to bring about. Now, modern biology and most modern science, I think, certainly rejects the idea of an ultimate purpose or a sort of a teleological, strong sense of teleology. But ever since at least Jacques Monod, who was an interesting fellow, he was a Nobel Prize winner, French biologist. Who back in 1970, I think, wrote this wonderful book that is a little bit underappreciated today, but it's, I think it still makes for a great reading. Uh, Chance and Necessity, where he wrote um, that in biology, actually, you do have something that approaches teleology, but it's actually teleonomy that is, it's the appearance of purpose, uh, which explains why you how you get biological function. So basically, Monod said, look, it, it makes perfect sense. It is Perfectly scientifically legitimate to talk about the fact that the eyes and the blood and the and the heart have a function, unlike let's say a rock or a planet or a star, uh, right? So there is there is this dichotomy in nature where structures of living organisms that have evolved by natural selection do have a function. It makes perfect sense. It's not just a metaphor that's that people talk about. If you don't actually talk about a function of the eye, you don't understand the eye. If you just give a, a purely descriptive um, you know, account of the eye, is like, oh, it's made in a different, certain way with certain chemicals and so on and so forth. You say, yeah, okay, but what does it do? Um, and in, for the eye or for any biological, complex biological structure, it makes sense to ask the question, well, what does it do? What is it for? Well, on the other hand, for inanimate objects, it doesn't. Right? It,
1: doesn't you know, it, it doesn't make sense to ask that about Pluto, right?
0: That's right. Uh, you right, know, right. If you ask about a planet or a, or a star or a galaxy, what is it for? Well, it's not for anything. It just is, Right. Um, so, Monod uh, reintroduced basically, uh, he wasn't the only one, but he was, he's one of the major authors back in the 1960s and 70s, to sort of reintroduce this concept of teleonomy, so a milder version of teleology, basically. So, there is no plan as in the, se- in the sense of an intelligent designer, as in the case of the statue, where, where clearly the sculptor is an intelligent designer, uh, but there is a, a, a robust sense in which the process of natural selection, the phenomenon of natural selection, brings about biological function. It makes sense to talk about it. Now, you're right, however, that I think it's very sensible, on the other hand, to use a robust sense of teleology when we're talking about social sciences, right? In the case of human psychology, human sociology, uh, human economics, and so on and so forth, Certain things happen not just because they have a function. I mean, you know, the markets have a function or, or, or you know, the, the iPad that I have in front of me and I'm talking to you through is has a function, but they have a function that is the result of intelligent design. It really is directly analogous to the sculptor, right? And the people do these things on purpose, even though then some. Of the, the things that we do in society, especially aspects of economics, for instance, are actually the result of sort of automatic byproduct of human decisions. But nonetheless, there, are, there is human decision involved. It's not like, uh, you know, economists or politicians or policymakers uh, decide every single aspect of the economy uh, uh, consciously. Obviously, they don't. But the fact that we do have economic policies and we talk about economics and we have models about economics and so on and so forth means that these, these are actually purposive things in the robust sense of purposive. I mean there is an intelligent designer there, right? So I think that actually the way I come to see it, the the distinction between uh, teleology, teleonomy, and neither and none of the above is actually the distinction, the the, the fault line, if there is any, between the uh, social sciences, where a robust sense of teleology applies, the biological sciences, where robust teleology does not apply, but teleonomy does, and everything else, all the other sciences, chemistry, geology, physics, etc., where neither teleology nor teleonomy actually apply. Does that make sense to you? No,
1: I love it. I love it. And I actually like, I'm really fascinated by the way the way we divide the various sciences and looking for a sort of a heuristic by which to sort of characterize, And I like this idea that we we can, we can cluster the sciences under the, the sort of primary types of explanation or the, or the right. I think that that's really but let me just ask you a few things about this um, um, just to get clear um, um, because we indeed have talked about ethics before. So I did want to spend the bulk of this on, on, uh, on the actual sciences. Um, right. So first of all, about Aristotle um, now I, I want to be, sure that that we get aristotle right because it's not it's not clear to me that 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 by 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 purpose aristotle means something quite as strong as the way you characterize the sculptor because for aristotle aristotle's god is non-personified right the prime mover is non-personified and so it's not as if purpose in nature for aristotle is to be construed in this crude sense of something being intended, right? Um, that's the extent to which I think the religious adoption of Aristotle uh, mischaracter- right. mischaracterized him, right? Um, right? And so I guess what I would want to ask you, um, do you think that Aristotle really is talking about teleonomy? Or, yeah, right. or, or do you think that, that there's something either in between full-blown intentional tele- teleology in the sense of something intended and is there something in between those two or, or how do you see that
0: that's that's a good question uh and then you, you're right, absolutely. That Aristotle did not, you know, Aristotle's prime mover doesn't have anything to do with a, an intelligent designer, uh, you know, in the creation It's not God of the
1: creating the cosmos no. the way it is in Genesis. No. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, um, but
0: Aristotle himself does use examples like the sculptor. So I, yes, it's yes. To, I, You know, I'm not an Aristotle scholar, so don't go beyond yeah. it. Oh, right. We're on a video that it's going to be seen by thousands of people. Oh well.
1: <laughs> I'm not criticizing um, the metaphor. I'm just, I'm just asking right, right. whether Aristotle has, when he's talking about nature, strictly speaking.
0: Yeah. But uh, well, I think biology it's, re- you
1: know. right. I think it's
0: reasonable to actually uh, uh, say that Aristotle may have been amb- ambiguous about it. That mm-hmm. is, that you're right that the uh, Aristotle's prime mover does not have that strong sense of teleology. In fact, it could basically be interpreted as a as a particular version of teleonomy. Uh, even that, I think, is a sense of, t- sense of teleonomy that we don't ac- uh, that modern science does not, a, 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 uh, you know, uh, accept. Because he did not limit it to biology, he included everything.
1: including okay, I'll get to that in a minute. But let me ask you: just let's pretend it's all, we're only talking about biology. How would you differentiate what you're calling teleonomy from what Aristotle meant, as opposed to, let's say, a medieval Christian Aristotelian? Right.
0: Right. Um, right, right.
1: No, I wouldn't. That's
0: right. I wouldn't. So, in that, if we're sticking to biology, I think that Aristotle is essentially call, talking about. Well, what we're talking now today, we're calling today teleonomy. Okay. Um, okay. What makes it ambiguous, I think, is both his use of metaphors like, you know, examples like the sculptor, which is clearly intelligent, an example of intelligent design, um, and also the fact that he that he applies uh, his concept more broadly to the entire cosmos. And now we don't think, you know, some people do, I suppose, but most scientists don't think that the cosmos has anything like the uh you know the teleonomic, teleonomic aspect uh that biology presents i mean there are exceptions right Th- that's is- what
1: i wanted to ask you about next so let me ask, you mentioned geology right are there not complex systems that operate at the geolo- at the geological level that are kind of hard to not to not to do the science without appealing to systems let's say between i don't know um um uh land and water systems or, right. or, or or right so how would you pull all that apart right so that's a good question so so, so
0: some uh, uh not only geologists but actually some biologists or some scientists that work at the interface between the two for instance uh community and ecosystem uh, ecologists right so these are people who are essentially biologists by training so they talk you know they're ecologists but what they are interested in are the, is the interface between the biological world and the geophysical world, right? So, so they talk about, as you say, you know, water cycles, for instance, or, or mineral cycles and things like that and within the biosphere. And they often do use uh, language that sounds teleological or at least teleonomic because they talk about, for instance, ecosystem services, right? So... Um, so they say, oh, the, the recycling of water, the recycling of minerals is what makes possible for, you know, the biosphere to function in a certain way.
1: Right. Like, to, or to create certain kinds of atmospheres that then exactly. things can exactly. live in and so on and so
0: forth. Exactly. But I do think that, but I actually have uh, been pushing back against these people for using that language. I think Explain that's why. Well, that, I think that's a sloppy metaphor because... Um, while we do it, let's take the the example of oxygen in the atmosphere that's a perfect example so uh you know our life as we understand it today on this on this planet is made possible in part by the fact that there is oxygen you know breathable oxygen and we are the kind of animals the kind of organisms that breathe oxygen but of course the early atmosphere did not have uh, oxygen and oxygen or had very little oxygen and oxygen is actually the result of biological processes it's a, it's a uh, um, it's, a, it's something that gets discarded by plants during photosynthesis, right? Which means that if, we, if photosynthesis worked in a different way, we would have never had an oxygen-type uh, uh, atmosphere, and therefore the, the entire course of evolution on Earth would have been different. Well, so what? Uh, meaning there was no particular rhyme or reason for why that was the case. This, this is a, that's why I use the word byproduct. It's not like natural selection or anything like it Actually preferred a planet with oxygen rather than a planet without oxygen, on the other hand, the evolution of structures like mm, the eye mm, mm, is the result of a process where there is a there is a competition, and the, the, the animals that have even rudimental uh, rudimentary eyes and or ways to perceive uh, you know light that actually do get ahead they, they reproduce they survive better than others right, right? Right, 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 so right. so the biology of of um, uh complex systems uh, complex organs does have an answer to okay how do we get these functions Uh, well that's natural selection there's no equivalent answer at the ecosystem level there's nothing like that at the ecosystem level uh unless you buy into what i think are fringe ideas like the gaia hypothesis
1: did you say fringe or french <laughs> french. <laughs> yeah, I don't i'm think sorry. They're French. I, I had to yeah. say that i'm sorry Although, i'm really
0: sorry <laughs> you're right that
1: the french often do have ideas and have interesting ideas, ideas right? <laughs> I'm just, we're going i'm gonna get murdered for that in the comments but. i know it's funny
0: you actually mentioned the french open parenthesis I, I just contributed finishing a contribution to a new book on on the darwinian traditions meaning that something that traces the uh, evolution of Darwinism, if you will. And one of the chapters is, is about uh, the the, so the French uh, take during the 20th century about evolutionary theory. And you know a lot of French biologists are still talking about Lamarck uh, as if it were a viable thing. So the French are French sometimes. <laughs> but um, back to the French. So, so the Gaia hypothesis is something that uh, was produced, uh, you know, elaborated in the 1960s and 70s. And it's been accepted only by a very small number of people, like Lynn Margulis was one of the most controversial biologists who actually bought into it. But most biologists just think it's... At best, Gaia is a metaphor. Gaia meaning that the planet should be thought of as itself as a living organism. It's a metaphor. And I think it's a bad metaphor. There is no equivalent at the planetary level of natural selection. It's not like, you know, an organism... Uh, if you think of the planet Earth as an organism, well, okay, in which environment it's competing with... Uh, uh, and, and with other planets or for resources, I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. There's no mechanism underlying right. this thing, so that's why I reject teleonomic talk or talk of function, even at the ecosystem level, and let alone therefore okay. at the geophysical level.
1: Okay, so that's the. So let me just press one more a little bit, and then and then yeah. we'll move on. But because um, this this strikes me as being actually one of the crucial uh, issues. Um, <sighs> I see the problem, a part of the problem also with the sort of the ecosystem sort of level of discussion is that it's, of course, adulterated by the biological, which is yes. teleonomic, right? Yes. So I actually was thinking of it at a much lower level than that. Um, um, so, for example, what's wrong with seeing, a chem- with, with talking of a chemical reaction um, as, as an end, um um as an as as an end in the tele- in the teleonomic sense of an end yeah. um, um, uh, you 've said to me and, and, and i 'm sure you were speaking metaphorically but again, I want you to explain why that there 's something very special about carbon that it bonds and very and this is why probably we can 't make silicon uh mines right um or very likely we won 't be able to make silicon mines um but this idea that sort of you know that certain chemicals interact in certain ways to create certain, to have certain results, um, if we're not talking about teleology in the sense of intending something, right. what is wrong with speaking of those end states in, as ends? Yeah. And speaking of that, in an, using that in an explanatory way, what is wrong with talking that
0: way? Well, I think what's wrong with it is that there's no mechanism uh, that would explain in what sense, in what robust sense those things are uh, are have functions so let's let's take the example of of uh, chemical reactions right uh, so if by a chemi- if if you take a simple chemical reaction that occurs you know uh, naturally outside of biological systems as many reaction chemical reactions do right um, then then the question of well what is that for wouldn't even arise i mean no chemists goes around saying, well, I wonder wh- why is it that, you know, this particular chemical reaction happens under these conditions? They go about the question in terms of how does it happen? They want to figure out how, what the, what the, how the thing works, but they don't ask themselves why. Now, on the other hand, take a chemical reaction, a complex biochemical reaction that happens inside a living organism, right? Mm. Uh, such as something that has to do with uh, uh, hemoglobin exchange of carbon dioxide and oxygen. Well, there, you can still ask the same kind of question the chemist asks, you know, how does it work? But you would be, you know, definitely missing something if you were not also asking the question the biologist asks, which is, well, why is that thing working that way? What, what, what's, what's the function? What is the purpose of it, right? And, and there is a purpose there. It's the, there is a question of, you know, of uh, oxygenating your blood, uh, which, of course, does have a, a an effect on your ability to survive and reproduce and which is why of course natural selection favored certain chemical reactions or arrangements of chemical reactions within, within living organisms. Now there are some people who would make that case at a cosmic level. Uh, but they're very rare and usually they're not scientists. Like the the most important one probably recently is Thomas Nagel, uh, who wrote, you know, the NYU philosopher who wrote this book that got really, uh, severely criticized it by a number panned. of scientists. Yeah, it got panned, right. yeah. Um, and basically, T- Nagel is saying, look, we're, modern science is missing something. Um, yeah. it, it's missing, it, it, it has to recover a sense of teleology, otherwise we can't make sense of, you know, why there is consciousness, why there is intelligent beings and things like that. Yeah,
1: yeah. And, you know, I respect Nagel. I mean, Nagel is a really smart guy. But I kind of wish I, he hadn't gotten so panned. I mean, I, I guess I, I wish that there was room for people to speculate a little more. Um, sure. Um, without yeah. just being absolutely driven back underground, because I think the result right. ultimately is that people are just not going to ask these questions, which I don't know if I think is a good thing. But anyway. Right, no,
0: anyway. I, I agree. I agree. And by the way,
1: that kind of question was perfectly legitimate
0: in, in physics and biology not that long ago. So, uh, and, and of yeah. course, Nagel is onto something there, meaning that it does, you know, it is true that we still have no clue to how life itself evolved to begin with. If, is it possible? We have no idea. I mean, we, there's plenty of theories about it, but there's, we, we don't know. And we have even less of a clue about it, consciousness. Now, of course, to my view as a materialist, that doesn't create a problem. And this is just one of many things we don't know. And I assume that either we're going to find an answer or not, because I'm not... As you know, I don't. I don't assume that just because we're looking for answers to certain questions, we're going to find
1: them. You don't think that there's a special problem beyond the just the ordinary "I don't know" in the question of how subjectivity can exist in matter? No, I, I don't. Hmm.
0: That's why. That's why See, I I, I, I uh, do. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Uh, well, you're not alone. But that's no. why I reject um, uh, Alan. Ch- uh, David Chalmers, Chalmers not Alan Chalmers. Yeah, Alan Chalmers, Chalmers, this, this, yeah. Alan yeah, Chalmers yeah. is a philosopher of science. Yeah, 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 He's a really yeah, really interesting guy. But uh, yeah, that's why I, re- I reject David Chalmers' so-called hard problem of consciousness. I don't yeah. think there is a hard problem of consciousness. Yeah. I think yeah. there is a problem of consciousness for sure, but I don't think it's hard in the sense that he that he means it. Now Nagel disagrees, and you know, he basically thinks that there is in fact a hard problem that that science is unequipped to deal with, and then now he goes in a different direction from Chalmers. Chalmers basically espouses a, a mild version of dualism uh you know Nagel says that there is some kind of major principle that modern science is still missing it's possible i
1: mean yeah i don't i don't think that either i mean i i think it's a hard problem and that it's a conceptual problem i think the answer is going to be Wittgensteinian ultimately yeah it's going to require a very uh, subtle way of understanding how viewpoint and how we look at things but so i i we might not disagree that much but I, i don't want to get too far off it um um this one last thing about this i feel like i'm i'm put i'm I'm badgering, but I, I don't yet quite see it. So you say that there, there is a sense in asking, what is it for? Yeah. Uh, or what is a process for in the case of biology, right? Um, but not in the other cases. Why can't I say, let's say I'm talking about uh, geological effects, that certain geological effects are for creating a riverbed? uh
0: because you're introducing something that is un- that is unnecessary right so scientists tend to be parsimonious about their or they should be at least parsimonious about their metaphysics uh and, and and about the their explanatory uh you know the way in which they explain things i mean a river is the way it is because the way the, because the physical chemical processes uh at the geological level that create rivers work that way and um and there is no additional, you know, once that I describe the, the, the uh, geological processes, once that I describe the chemistry and physics of the materials involved and how the water, uh, you know, uh, works on rocks and things like that, then there is nothing else that needs to be explained. Uh, I have a complete explanation of why a river, you know, is formed in a certain way. On the other hand, uh, if I were to give you a complete biochemical explanation, you know, account of how hemoglobin. Uh, exchanges carbon dioxide and oxygen. You would still have a very good question. Said, yeah, but why does that happen inside living organisms? And if I say, well, it just so happens, they can
1: so they can respirate, or say they can, exactly. yeah, 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 yeah,
0: right. yeah, yeah, yeah. If yeah. I say, well, it just happens, then I'm I'm obviously missing a big chunk of what's going on there.
1: There is almost. It sounds to me like you're saying one has to be somewhat realist in the in the philosophical sense about the system. In biology in a way that you don't in the other sciences you can you can view it as a system you don't have to be a realist about the system in other words correct and and it seems to me I mean this may connect back to the discussion we had about sellers it seems to me that 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 where that sort of talk comes is when you interpret the scientific image in the terms of the manifest right so when we look at the world and we interpret what the geologists are doing we do naturally do things like oh it did that and cre- that's what created the riverbed right right and we exactly. view the sort of the geolo- the geological pro- thing system as a system but we don't have to be realists about it as a, as a system um, within right. the scientific image right exactly um, and if um, we
0: go um, th- that way if we uh, if we are if we uh, fall for the temptation of going realist for systems that don't actually require uh, that approach then we f- we engage into what I Suspect is fuzzy thinking, such as the Gaia hypothesis
1: yeah um, yeah i, I don 't think it 's fuzzy thinking in, in, as long as we 're operating in the manifest image, I mean, and I do think we said sure. last time that that inevitably because we are human, we interpret the, the results of the scientific image in terms of the manifest image, but we have to be careful. Right. Just like we shouldn't import pieces of the scientific image piecemeal into the manifest, we certainly shouldn't go in the other direction. Exactly, uh, and important. Okay, so let's let's now focus strictly speaking on biology because I did have another thing I wanted to ask you. And so, um, in Aristotle there are no formal there are no final causes without formal causes in other words form form a uh, 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 pur- purpose and form go together um as a matter of fact you can for aristotle you can read a thing's purpose off of its form right um and inversely he says purpose is actually prior to all the other causes right. um, um, um uh, liar making, uh, uh, liar playing is the reason why there are liars, right? And the exactly. reason why liars have the, have the shape and form and properties that they do. Um, and given that we've agreed that Aristotle is not, uh, at least in his uh, science, uh, uh, teleologic, full-blown teleological in the sense that it implies intention, um, would you say that in modern biology we also recover the formal cause?
0: Oh, that's a good question. Um, hmm.
1: So, no, I don't think so. Explain. Uh, the, now, so how is that possible? How can you have a final cause without a formal
0: cause? Well, that's, I think, the major difference between teleology and teleonomy. Okay, go on. So now that you put it, in fact, I, I haven't thought about it that way, but now that you put it that way, it's kind of interesting. I
1: warned you. I sent it in the email.
0: but I didn't really process it until you actually just put it this way. So, and I think you have a good point there, that, that it's going to be helpful, again, to separate the biological sciences from the social sciences. Because in the social sciences, you do have, in fact, both the formal... Uh, I agree with that, the, yeah. ...and yeah. the final cause, right? Uh, as you just said, the, 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 the you know economic systems are there for a purpose, and they are actually instantiated in a certain way, because somebody has a purpose in mind. That's right. Um, But in the case of biological systems, that's not the case. There is a, if you want to talk about a final cause, and the final cause is the process of natural selection, which uh, aims at uh, maximizing, you know, survival and reproduction. But it's not like, it's not the equivalent. It's not something that, uh, you know, that doesn't imply that things have to go in a particular way, that there is some some kind of a form that is already pre, uh, you know, present before the final outcome is out the uh, natural selection is an is a very much a contingent process it works with whatever it's available locally, and it's not even an optimizing process. Arguably, it's what. Right, the you technology. said that last time.
1: You said it's not particularly efficient. I asked you right. whether it's efficient, and you said right. it isn't. Yeah. it isn't. Yeah. It's, yeah. A, there's a
0: lot of waste uh, in in the biological yeah. world. I mean, just think about the obvious statistic: 99 plus percent of all species that ever existed went extinct. Um, That's certainly not efficient. That's <laughs> yeah, definitely not efficient. <laughs> um, I mean, sometimes uh, uh, natural selection looks a little, more, a, a bit more like a ruby. Goldberg machine, then, yeah, than, yeah, you know, yeah. Than, you know, or the outcome of natural selection. Now, it, it it's not quite that bad as a ruby Goldberg machine because there is a certain degree of efficiency. Because otherwise, other organisms are going to be slightly more efficient in doing certain things; are going to outcompete you.
1: And therefore there's relative efficiency, right?
0: Exactly. Yeah, there is relative yeah, efficiency. Yeah. Uh, you know, major drive here is re- relative fitness. How well are you doing compared to anybody who is comp- competing with you in your in your own environment for for your own resources? so but natural selection is not an optimizing process it's what uh, is much more akin to what uh, economists call a satisfying process that is Explain uh, it that. doesn't so it doesn't have it doesn't have to get you in the best possible uh, so let's say engineering let's say we're talking about the the the, the heart again or uh, right so the the mod- the, the vertebrate heart uh, you know mammalian heart as as four chambered but it hasn't always been like that. In evolution, the art started out as a much simpler thing with two chambers and then three chambers and then four chambers. That shows that natural selection works by step by step. It didn't arrive at the at the best possible outcome immediately, and in fact, even the current outcome is not the best possible one because, as you know, there's all sorts of things that can go wrong with with uh, with a heart um you know if you are into science fiction you were, you might think that um either the Klingons or Star Trek or Doctor Who have a much better solution because they have two hearts right, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> If the first if, if the first one fails, they have a second one,
1: and that's. We, a, but we also have redundant systems, right? For that we purpose, we have redundant systems,
0: but not. You can live
1: kidney. with you can live with one kidney. You can live with one correct. lung. You can correct, right, right, correct. But that
0: actually is a result mostly of the fact that we we have bilateral symmetry in our bodies mm. more than anything else. Uh, it, uh, again, other, uh, there are certain structures of which we don't have two, and if we lose it, we're done. The heart yeah. being yeah. An obvious example, Yeah, right? yeah. Uh, so it's certainly not ideal or perfect by any or, or optimized by any any standard. What it is, however, it's good enough. It, it does the job, and it does the job more importantly better than any alternative that had been around before. Right. So four chambered, uh, uh, four chambered heart uh, animals have out-competed and done well compared to three chambers and two chambered ones. And that's
1: all that matters in terms of natural selection. There's no... You know, but is there not a... Let me ask you, this, is there not a fundamental... Yeah. St- I mean, is there not a basic form, though, that anything that performs this function would have to have? Oh, yeah, sure. Or is it Those really are, indeterminate? It, it's... In and that's between. the issue,
0: right? It's it's in between. It's not it's not quite that determinate, but it's not quite indeterminate either. So that what you're talking about then is what biologists refer to as, as developmental constraints. So uh, there is only a certain number of ways in which you can do certain things with certain materials. So the 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 the, the classic example is why why don't we have why is it impossible to have flying pigs? Well, because wings,
1: uh, typically, <laughs> yeah. About, you, you, you I, it were, took me a second to catch up to that. Oh, yeah, of course, pigs have wings. I, I, that's I, right. I, yeah, yeah, exactly. Was, but, <laughs> so
0: the problem with flying yeah. pigs, the way in which they're normally depicted, is that they have, you know, the four limbs and then the two, the two wings, right? But the wings, every time the wings evolved in vertebrates, they actually replaced Limbs, the forelimbs, right, right. right? And so you can't have them both ways, and why not? Well, that's because the vertebrate body plan, it's called in biology, referred to as biology, works that way, and there are basically no exceptions. There seem to be developmental constraints such as either with the forelimbs, you either use them as limbs or you use them as, as wings, but you can't do both. Right. Right? So
1: uh, – Although that's this- not generally true, right? There are animals for which flippers can also serve as feet, Right. Uh, animals that that are both in the water and then can come out. And of walk course, around. but
0: they work actually suboptimally for for both purposes, right? So that's gotcha. a, so there are some fish for instance, who are kind of, kind of able to, you know, they live at the interface between water and, and, uh, and land and they're kind of able to, you know, hop around a little bit. But clearly, they're not doing very well. <laughs> right? they, do. they like, they kind of look funny back that, that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, now, yeah. Now, it's also the case, however, that the same constraint does not apply to other body plants. If you're an insect, for instance, you don't have that problem because insects have three segments, and so they can they can uh, uh, play. They have more interplay between uh, between uh, uh, limbs and and wings. They, their wings are constructed in a different way, developmentally speaking. So there are some constraints on biological form. So it's not that you know, natural selection can't do whatever it wants, basically. Um, but those constraints are not absolute, meaning that there are, that there is some leeway in, in the way in which an organism can be put together. But the, ant- the other interesting thing is the more time passes in evolution, uh, Stephen Jay Gould famously argued, the more the constraints become relevant because if you study, let's say, the common ancestors of all vertebrates was probably much more developmentally flexible than modern vertebrates because it had a number of different options. And then it went one down certain kind of ways, certain lineages. And once it's, those lineages have done away with additional segments, let's say, uh, and therefore multiple limbs or things like that, that's it. Then, then you're done. There's nothing else. It's, hard, it's very hard to, come to, to go back. And so you places. say that
1: the more advanced an organism, the more it might make sense to speak of formal causes? Because, I go quite that far. Because because the functions that these things are served are increasingly can only be served by a constrained yeah. set of forms.
0: Right, right. But I, uh, that's true. But first of all, it's actually uh, you know most biologists would 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 be resistant to use a word uh, of the word advance. It's just like evolutionarily later uh, because it doesn't uh, you know advance is Jay- a value is a value judgment. It's a value yeah. judgment. Yeah. Stephen yeah. Jay Gould famously. Uh, reminded us is like you know we're so proud of being sort of the, the, the owners of the planet and all yeah, that The but cockroaches in fact, is, insects are the owners of the planet the, right? the inter- yeah or even better the b- bacteria bacteria uh, right in terms right. of the biomass bacteria way outperform us. yeah yeah they, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
1: so, yeah 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 um the, the reason i'm pushing on this so hard is because eventually i mean this will matter when we cross over into ethics right and so right i mean you know for, famously the idea for Aristotle at least, is that the relationship between the final cause and the formal cause, between ends and and forms, is that. Um ends are uniquely served by fo- by certain forms right and yes. so and so um, um, uh, the, the the reason why the perp- you know the, re- the the relationship between and a human being between that which we are for which is let's say civic life right right uh, uh, is directly related to that that wh- that which uh, defines our form and that is um, uh, that we are uh, defined in terms of uh, rational uh, r- rational uh, cognition right right um, and so You know, it's important if 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 you think, as you obviously don't, which I'm, which you're going to get to next. But if you think that it's important in order to recover a modern uh, virtue ethic, that we come up, we recover some modern notion of teleology, uh, of purpose, then the question is raised as to, um, well, what's the relevant form, right? What's the relevant. Ess- essential property of human nature right. that's gonna uh that's gonna make that purpose uh possible. Um, um right. well so so,
0: that, so we go to Anscombe and then because yeah, the, yeah, the question yeah. then is uh so I like I really like that her her paper and of course as you said it's been very influential.
1: It's provocative, uh, it opens everything up. You yeah, start asking absolutely. things and, and yeah,
0: yeah. Absolutely. Now, you know, the conclusion itself is like made me wary immediately. Like so so she says, okay, well, so modern approaches like the ontology suffer from the fact that they uh, try to do away with the concept of a lawgiver and and they't they can't function that way. Uh, Virtual ethics isn't going to work because it tries to do away with the Aristotelian concept of ultimate causes or teleology and that's not tenable in, uh, anymore. And so Unless we recover
1: some modern version of um, it, which she's, right, which she's right, open right. to, but doesn't right. think it's going to be as easy as everybody thinks exactly. it might be. And um, so her conclusion is, well, we should stop,
0: stop doing moral philosophy and do, you know, as, we, as you put it, philosophy of psychology. Yeah. Well, first of all, that's not practical. Practical. We can't stop doing moral philosophy.
1: We well, we can't stop... We can't stop... Wait a minute. I don't know about that. We can't stop employing the moral idiom in our daily lives. But we could stop producing moral theories, right? I mean, we could do that. Sure. I mean, um, sure. um, philosophers could, you know, they could do something else. They could dig ditches or write violin concertos or or, or something yeah, useful, you know? <laughs> that's, just, true. Uh, <laughs> that's
0: Yeah, I suppose that's true. But I, don't, I, I, I just... Uh,
1: as bad. a guy who just wrote a book on ethics, you're not too keen on that idea. No, exactly. I'm, <laughs> not, I'm not too keen on that. So, hey, Why now, do you think she's why, wrong about, about, about the, the latter point? Let's not go on the divine law, giver. that's not what we're on. I think because, why do you think you don't need teleology to do modern virtue ethics?
0: Well, I think because I actually think that she makes the same mistakes in both cases, if I may. Uh, I mean, I know she's a, yeah, I, I, I know she's a big name in, 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 in moral philosophy, but but I do think that she makes, in fact, exactly the same mistake in both cases. Go ahead. Uh, which is a confusion uh, between the historical roots of something and the necessary condition for that something. Right. So when she says, oh,
1: and if she does, McIntyre certainly does. I mean, he even more emphasizes the the genealogies of these traditions. So go ahead. Yeah. But that's the problem with genealogies in general. So I just finished an
0: introductory philosophy course uh, where we talked about Nietzsche, uh, you know, genealogy of morals. And it seems to me that Nietzsche's uh, project is undermined by the same basic mistake. That is, he's right that you can show that the concept of morality and the use of the word morality has a genealogy. It has changed over time, and it's different in different cultures and different in different uh, times. But that doesn't undermine the validity of certain concepts, at least, or certain versions of the concept. It just tells you that the concept has a history. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, we're, we're talking about human culture, so it has to have a history. But one of the things about cultural human culture is precisely that we're capable of discerning um, You know what is good and what is bad about our ancestors' ideas, and you throw away the bad stuff and keep the good one, and keep working on. Let me give you an example from science. So I was interested. I got interested in this thing because a couple of years ago, uh, somebody whose name now uh, escapes me, but um, for our listeners, we can um, put a link to an article to a post that I wrote about this specific issue uh, that I'm about to introduce in a minute. So, so I've been interested in the origin of the idea of natural law. In science, forget morality for a minute, just in science. So Newton talks about the laws of physics. Modern physicists talk about the laws of physics. Uh, but, of course, if you ask uh, Stephen Weinberg or Stephen Hawking or, or anybody like that today, they would definitely say, no, 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 we don't mean that there is a law giver. What we mean by laws of physics is that the, the, the world is structured in, a, in, a, in such a way that certain regularities are without exceptions that gravity works no matter where in the universe, no matter, no matter what you do to it, and so on and so forth, right? That the, the, uh, atomic decay works in a particular way, etc., etc. But Newton did mean that the laws of physics came from a lawgiver, giver.
1: Right, because okay. he was
0: at least a deist, if not a He was at least a deist, if not a more. Now, apparently, and we're gonna put the link to a, a short, short post that I wrote about this thing uh, a couple of years ago, I heard of a talk here at the Graduate Center at City uh, University by somebody who was tracing the idea of laws of nature, and we say that there was a debate early on in, uh, you know, at the, the onset of uh, modern physics in the 17th and 18th centuries. Galileo, for instance, apparently was very wary of talking about laws of nature, uh, unlike Descartes, uh, who, you know, today we know as a as a uh, philosopher, but at, at the time he thought of himself just as much as a physicist, right? And so there was a debate there, and Galileo was kind of wary, and said, no, wait a minute, now, if we're talking about laws, we're bringing in something that sounds a little too, sort of, essentially, religious, teleological, et cetera, et cetera, right? Now, so at the beginning of modern physics, there was a debate. Major physicists, you know, figures like uh, Descartes and Newton, went and used the, the term laws of nature expressly, explicitly meaning uh, that these laws were coming from a lawgiver. Modern science has abandoned that talk, and yet it has retained the concept of a law of nature, just reinterpreting it in, in, a, in a way, in a more mechanistic right. way, right? right? So that is my analogy, that I don't see a reason, certainly I don't see a reason in either Anscombe or, or McIntyre why... Uh, Moral philosophy can't do the same. Can I give you a why reason?
1: Can I say why I think they do? Yes, <laughs> of course. So I, here's I, you've you've done this before, and you've also given the example of laws of logic. Um, 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 and here here now, look. I mean, they may be wrong about this, but I don't think I don't think they're making this mistake. Um, um, and and I would be surprised if someone like Anscombe, who was also a very tough analytic philosopher, would make this sort of mistake. Um, In her opinion, the modern notion of obligation, ought, um, has a connotation of requiredness. Um, That is, that which is required or forbidden. And she thinks that in order to sustain that connotation requires a requirer. In other words, it is true that... um, uh, if I want to think rational, uh, if I want to uh, think logically, I have to follow the laws of logic, and that doesn't require a lawgiver. Right. But the laws of logic are not required, and, and failing to obey them is not forbidden, only relative to certain interests. In, in other words, both she and McIntyre are suggesting that the modern connotation, the connotation of ought in modern moral philosophy is that of a categorical imperative. Right, um, well, that's um, right. Now, now, right. now, if you disagree with that, I then <laughs> right, right, no, 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 no. But not it's not that you disagree that obligation really is categorical, but whether the common understanding of the modern ought is categorical, and I, I think it is just by the way that people speak and the way that people use it. Um, that's why they differentiate um, 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 obligations from desires, right? But that, don't
0: you think that that is a problem for uh, a, let's say a moral realist, but not for anybody else. So I'm not a moral realist in that sense. I don't believe that the laws of law lo- of of, of um, right. uh, morality, just like right. the laws of of logic, for that matter, are sort of written out there. And so they don't. They, to me, they don't imply any kind of categorical imperative. They only imply. I interpret them all as conditional imperatives, as hypothetical I mean. imperatives. Yeah. Right. Yeah, right. hypothetical right. imperatives. Right. So uh, only in the sense of well, if you want to live in a society like ours, you don't go around murdering people right and if you do we're gonna lock you up right uh, but i, th- I stuff right I
1: don't, and i don't think that, I, I think that all that anscombe is, is really saying is and that magenta is saying is that look if by ought and ought not you mean required and and forbidden yeah. in a strong sense um mm-hmm. then that requires and that and that and then that that requires um a, a lawgiver and what testifies to the fact that it does is that Kant thought it did, which is why he tried to replace the lawgiver with a self-legislator, um, which is what Anscombe says you can't do because the, the, the lawgiver has to have more power than the law receiver and right. you can't legislate to yourself. She said that that's absurd. So, right. so, so I don't know that she disagrees with you. It's more that she's speaking to what she thinks people commonly mean. And now if you now what you're saying is, look, they may commonly mean that but that obligation can't be that right exactly um, right exactly. Um, um, and, and so her critique may uh,
0: in fact i think does succeed against a sort of a strong uh, robust notion of kantianism right uh, but but not everybody subscribes to yes. that kind of notion right and i Also, agree with it that. fails to it fails i think uh, against any any version of utilitarianism because utilitarians are not uh, uh you know they don't they don't they don't uh, so imagine that there is this, this right. kind of categorical yeah. art. No
1: she has right. different she has a different critique of utilitarianism right. which we don't need right. to get into. That's a self separate part of the paper. I mean half the right. paper is devoted to criticizing uh, Bentham and Mill and Sidgwick and right. and, and as you, and you know I'm, I'm not a utilitarian yeah. either. So, yeah. But, yeah. But, but
0: I mean that that the point is that particular critique does not even apply to utilitarianism. Yeah. Yeah. So um, let's
1: talk also, now about what why you I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah no I was going to virtualize. About virtue, about why That's you don't right. need to recover a modern notion of teleology in order for to face similar virtue. Uh, For so similar
0: reasons. Okay, so go through reasons. that, rehearse
1: that. So, um, so even though it's
0: clearly the case that Aristotle meant his tele- teleonomy or teleology, whatever he was doing right. uh, there to be fundamental to his, uh, to, his virtue, uh, uh, to, to his version of virtue ethics, other versions of virtue ethics didn't necessarily require that, uh, right? The Stoics or the Epicureans, for instance, uh, talked about you know let's analyze facts in hand what it is that makes human beings strive and is so that epicurus a that qu- quote
1: facts in hand was was that not, a, that's, ex- no, that's is that an expression they use okay no that's my interpretation
0: but basically they said you know it's not it's not like there is this ultimate purpose of thing uh, uh, um, uh, epicurus says look what what is he asks um, is not again not at the right quote, but he asks what is it that makes human beings, you know, happy or 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 unhappy? Well, pain makes them unhappy. In fact, pain is the major thing that makes them unhappy.
1: This is an empirical observation on his part,
0: right? Now, you, of course, uh, you mean, all-
1: you don't mean by happy the modern hedonic notion of happy. You're talking no, about right. you. You're talking about eudaimonist notion That's right. of happy, right? That's okay, right. go So, on, go so on.
0: makes their life not worth living or right. le- or less worthy of living, right? Um, yes, because otherwise it would be obvious that pain is is Counter to modern modern conception of happiness, but in, in the sense of you know yeah, but in the sense of you know the Greek sense, Greek and Roman sense of what is a what kind of life is worth living, uh, it be, it be that look, it's a matter of fact. If you just observe, go around and observe human beings, uh, they shy away. If there is anything that they shy away from, is pain, and and if they if there is anything that they embrace are. Simple pleasures of two kinds: simple physical pleasures, like you know a good meal or you know a nice you know little house and that sort of stuff, shelter, and intellectual pleasures—the pleasure of of company, of you know good friendship and things like that. That is so he, he built his system on what he thought were empirical observations. Now you can of course question your empirical observations, right? Because you say, wait, wait, wait a minute, and in fact, the Stoics did. The right. They, they don't all,
1: they're all looking at the same facts, but they're not coming to the same conclusions about Correct. what constitutes flourishing. Correct. So, so the major objection the Stoics had, or a
0: major objection the Stoics had to the, to the Epicureans was like, no, my friend, we do all sorts of things on purpose where we, we go through pain because we think that there is a higher purpose, that you know, there is a better objective. So I, I go to the gym and that's painful because I think it improves my health right, uh, or children, and he said, and Epicurus said, um, it comes naturally, it's, it's instinctive to uh, people to avoid pain, and the stoic said, no, if you look at child development, the child, when it begins to learn how to walk, it's painful, you can see that it's not enjoying that sort of stuff, but it does it anyway, because it's a good thing to learn how to walk, so they disagreed on the empirical, right, on empirical stance, uh, and and, of course, in general, they were talking about human nature, sure, right? So so Epicurus thought that human nature is the nature of, a, of an organism that seeks to, uh, you know, s- certain kinds of pleasures and avoid pains, just like John Stuart Mill, who was, in fact, heavily influenced by, as we know, by by Epicurus, right? That well, Ma- John- Martha
1: Nussbaum has argued that Mill is more of a eudaimonist than a utilitarian. He th- I think she's of, right. Um, and that Bentham really is the, is, is the... Is yes. the I think yeah. she's right, but yeah. of course
0: Mill also was right. If you know, if we can open just a parenthesis for a second, because yeah. Mill introduced this distinction uh, between uh, higher and lower pleasures, right? With his famous uh, uh, phrase that when I that I find out. By the way, an empirical fun, empirical fact about philosophy. Pigs. So I found out. Yeah, the <laughs> pigs and Socrates thing. I found out that people are completely split about it. If you, if you tell it to some people, they say, oh, yeah, of course, I get it. And other people say, no, no, that's stupid. That, I don't get it. <laughs> so the, the quote is something on the line that uh, – it's not a verbatim quote. But maybe we can post a link to it's it. It's better to be it.
1: Socrates uh, dissatisfied than a pig satisfied. Right, and yeah. <laughs> if the pig disagrees, that's just because he's not Socrates, right? Well, because, <laughs> yeah, yeah. the, the idea being that that, that that a competent judge of the matter is one who's experienced right. both, right? Who's right? experienced both. And people do
0: yeah. see that, and I can see that. I can see the objection. People see that, oh, but that's elitist because now what's a competent judge, et etc.? et cetera. Right, but that, fine. But that was the, exactly the point that Epic, that Epicurus was making. Interestingly, Epicurus was actually reacting against the Cyrenaids. The Cyrenaids were a minor... Uh, sect at the time you know philosophy philosophy at the time who argued that only physical pleasures are important right okay and and because they were hedonists
1: in the sense that people modern imply today when they say the right yeah yeah correct Yeah. yeah. and so mill
0: was reacting against bentham because if bentham since bentham did not make a distinction between lower and higher pleasures it turns out that you know if um, abolishing opera and theater uh, makes uh, and 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 uh, sort of replacing them with soap operas all day for people, uh, on average increases happiness because you know more people appreciate soap operas. You know, then that's, that right? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> that's what we should do. Then that's what we should do. And you know, Mill said, "Wait a minute, no, hold on. <laughs> right. So now they they were all talking, however, about human nature. So Epicurus saw human nature in a particular way. The Stoics saw human nature in another in another way. Uh, you know, the the had a different opinion, and so on and so forth. But none of these opinions, I think, requires, in a modern sense, a robust notion of teleology. You don't have to say that that's the way human nature was, you know, sort of kind of predetermined somehow from the beginning of the universe, or or that that is the way it has to be. Human nature is actually pliable. Uh, You know, uh, my my version, my view of human nature is very similar to Hume. Uh, Hume wrote this wonderful uh, essay on human nature, where he says that there are I'm, – I'm going to paraphrase it and put it in modern terms, but basically this is what he says. He said, look, there are certain things that are basic, to being a human being, and those come from, as we will say today, from our biology. So we have certain instincts, you know, fear, uh, love of, of uh, our care, uh, caretakers and things like that. Those are just instinctive. They, they just come with being a human being. You know, we have a capacity for aggression. We also have a capacity for reason and compassion. We have a capacity for cooperation, but we also have a capacity for selfishness, right? And then he says, but then, then society comes in, so culture comes in, and then you can shape these things. And and you can shape them in a way that literally alters human nature, meaning that modern human nature, as opposed to let's say the Pleistocene, uh, right, is the result of a combination of an intricate combination of biology and culture. And if so, then it's pliable to some extent, at least, right. So I don't subscribe to a, a sort of a fixed view of human nature, but I don't think you you need it uh, if you want to be a uh, you know a virtual ethicist today. All you have to say is like, look. Human beings are so construed and human societies are so construed that if you behave in certain ways, you're going to be a better person, meaning that you are contributing to society and at the same time you're getting satisfaction from what you're doing. And really that's all there is to it. Uh, So it becomes, you know, let's not forget that the word morality, right, comes from the Latin moralis, which was the way in which Cicero translated it the word etikos uh, in, from, from the Greek, and both words refer to human customs yeah. and habits, right? Yeah. So we're talking about human customs and habits. Morality is, ethics is, the study of the best human customs and habits. Best in what sense? Best in the sense of furthering both societies uh, flourishing and individuals so- flourishing within society. Why both? Because we're inherently social animals, and so we can't flourish if, if society at large doesn't. And to me, that's all there is to it. There's nothing more deep, more profound, more sort of uh, basic than that. But well, I find it enough.
1: But well, let me ask you something. So, so I'm, I'm starting to wonder whether it's a bit oversimplistic to refer to all the Greeks as eudaimonists, because um, Eudaimonism, eudaimonia, as I define it when, 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 when teaching Aristotle, Means uh, human excellence or human flourishing. Now, yeah. those are inherently functional concepts, right? I mean, um, I mean, if I say to you, if if I pre- if I present you some with some device, and
0: yes. you have no idea
1: what it is, and I say, "Well, this is an excellent what's this? What what's it?" That right. literally doesn't mean anything until yeah. you know what what's it's are for, right? Yeah. No, you are absolutely right. So, 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 um, are you suggesting maybe that? We are we we're a bit too loose when we talk about Aristotle and Epicurus and Zeno and all these guys as being eudaimonists. Yes, is that really not a, not really correct?
0: <laughs> well, I, you know, correct is you know, or is it oversimplified?
1: Agree. I think it's I'm, I'm, oversimplified.
0: I, I certainly think it's oversimplified. So I I think that if you want to use eudaimonia in the strict sense of excellence, you know, human excellence according to human function, that basically is just Aristotle. And nobody else, pretty much, as far as I can tell. Not even Socrates. Not even Plato. Well, maybe
1: Plato. Arguably Plato. But not Socrates, certainly not but Socrates. But not necessarily Socrates, right? Yeah, so yeah. the late
0: Plato, but not the early. But not the yeah, early yeah, yeah, yeah. The right? more meta,
1: yeah, the metaphysical Plato. The more yeah, metaphysical yeah, yeah, Plato. Yeah, so, yeah, so the yeah. more
0: metaphysical Plato and Aristotle for very different reasons, because of course, as you know, Aristotle went in a very different direction. You know, he rejected the idea of, of the forms and all that sort of stuff. But for very different metaphysical reasons, I think the late Plato and Aristotle are the only ones that are strictly speaking Lymonic in the sense of excellence, uh, human, human excellence. The rest, have, including these two, However, our is sp- speaking Socratic, um, even Epicureans who actually rejected Socrates. I mean, they re- they were reacting. No, but to I know
1: what you mean by Socratic. This is really very interesting. I don't think people appreciate this at all. Um, this is uh, even philosophers. I don't think appreciate this. Yeah, right. It's not yeah. widely appreciated. Yeah, they, yeah,
0: right. So they were all Socratic in the sense that some of them explicitly uh, uh, c- considered them Socrates, themselves. Socratic. The, the, the uh, Stoics were often referred to as Socratic. Uh, and they did not reject the label. They don't. They didn't use it, uh, uh, you know, explicitly in their own writings because they didn't. Think, they didn't feel that sort of they were worthy of that kind of, you know, of taking over the mantle. Also because there were other people, including the Platonists, who were obviously uh, wanted the, the mantle of Aristotle. Uh, sorry, of, of Socrates. Um, but they were Socratic, certainly in the broad sense of the term. And even the Epicureans, who actually rejected, they put themselves in counterposition to Socrates in, in many respects. They're still derived, uh, you know, intellectually speaking, they, they're derived from the Socratic tradition. So all of the Hellenistic schools, I think, were Socratic in this broad sense. So if one wants to use the word eudaimonia in a looser sense, or I would say in a more modern sense, you remember that even positive psychologists god bless their heart as they say in the south um use the word the eudaimonia right but they use it in terms of in the broader sense of human flourishing not just human excellence right so human excellence i think is a very specific type of flourishing but we can agree that human beings flourish Outside yeah. of the concept yeah, of excellence. Because excellence
1: presupposes an idealization. And ideal and the end an idealization, right? Yes. Um a very solid notion of a determinate end. Whereas right. flourishing can be employed to simply speak to a commonly recognized condition, right? Um, right. Um, um and so in that sense, the the Socratic, what you're calling the Socratic, that then the Later, eudaimonists are more like, interestingly enough, than Plato or Aristotle are. is that they're not speaking of um, flourishing relative to a kind of an idealization um, that's derived from a metaphysics. It's really, they're talking about flourishing within the common ways in which human beings uh, live and operate. That's right. That is certainly the way in which Cicero meant it, and
0: Cicero considered himself actually a a late Platonist, right, an academic skeptic, basically. Yeah. Uh, But he was also very sympathetic to, to to the Stoics. Um, and as you know, you know we're working together now with with Sky, clearly, on, on the possibility of putting uh, editing a book on, on different sort of philosophies of life, right? And I that's what, that's one reason why one of my disagreements with the early Sto- with the actual original Stoics is that the original Stoics, just like any other Hellenistic philosophy, they were trying to make arguments that their
1: philosophy was
0: the philosophy to go,
1: it was the way to go, right? Oh, so and, the so, so the the Greeks, the Zeno and his and his gang. Were not um, ecumenical in the way that you no. that you characterize the later Stoics as being. No, they were not
0: ecumenical, and neither were the Epicureans or the Syrianics or any any of those others. They thought they they were having these really uh, strong debates because they thought they had the right way of looking at things, and everybody else was wrong. I think that a modern Stoic, uh, uh, at, least, at least the way I see modern Stoicism is ecumenical in the sense that, look, for me, there is a plurality of ways in which human beings can flourish. Uh, I don't think there is anything wrong for somebody today to say, look, I'm an Epicurean. I, I, we, I don't think that social and political engagement is worth it. i rather concentrate on my friends and family and live a simple life. Fine, my friend. If that makes you yeah, flourish yeah. and you don't kill anybody and you don't go you know, bombing anybody or anything right. like that, I mean, that's perfectly fine. Right. Now, I disagree, meaning that for me, right. political engagement right. is important. So Stoicism, which has embedded uh, that, that concept, is, is actually a better philosophy. Other people can be Buddhists and do kind of a little bit of between, uh, uh, between the, those two, etc., cetera, etc. There's a number
1: of possibilities. It's not really a disagreement. It's because flourishing, if you look at it as a sort of the common well-being of people, as we commonly understand it, is quite heterogeneous uh, uh, exactly. Uh, uh, exactly. and there may be people who simply are, are not suited to enter into politics um, um, right. um, um, like the president. That's um, um, now, <laughs> that's that, that sad, you know, so, uh, said,
0: so I don't want to go over to the opposite extreme. And say anything goes. No, no, no. So it's I, not relativistic. Right. 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 I mean, um, I do um, think um, that there are some philosophies of life. Let's say the obvious, called the obvious candidate, Nazism, yeah, um, that are just destructive of just every destructive.
1: form of of human right. life. Yeah, they don't yeah, bring yeah. flourishing in any in any yeah, meaningful yeah. sense of the term. Yeah. This is really so interesting because, you know, it actually gets at something. I had so many things I wanted to ask you when we did the stoicism thing that I had to leave some out, but I'm going to bring one of them up now because it really does what you just said kind of answers it. Now I have to think about whether I fully accept it, but it really does answer it. I was going to ask you why you gravitated towards Hellenistic philosophies, given that both Hellenistic philosophy and Hellenistic art are considered inferior to the classical period. Right. And, and if you know, and actually I think that the art history is very instructive in this regard because the Hellenistic is considered a degeneration uh, from right. the classical precisely because it's pathos filled, it abandons the formal uh, perfection and symmetries and, and other and other uh, qualities uh, that the classical art uh, has, and uh, the same is true of of the philosophies. Um, right. And I said, why would you pick a philosophy? Pick philosophies that that were adopted in the decline of civilizations at a time when we are experiencing the greatest prosperity. That right. um, that and so that was one of the things I was going to push you on. But now I think what you're saying is really interesting, and that is the only reason why we think of the classical philosophy and the classical art as superior is because of a kind of platonic bias, right? That's right, <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, real, both We're, in art, art among art historians and philosophers. Yeah, um, um, that's right. and, and, and if you don't take sort of the notion of idealization first and yep. instantiation second, but say, no, 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 no. Instantiation is everything, right? Exactly. And in the extent to which we exactly idealize, it. we pull out from the instantiation then it makes perfect sense. Right. Why I mean, there is, a,
0: there is a reason, and it's an ironic one, why my blog is called Footnotes to Plato, right? I'm not a Platonist, but I do recognize that Plato is everywhere uh, yeah. for good and for ill. And, yeah. you know, we're still responding to him. We're still in dialogue with him. Which, of course, you know, uh, some modern, scientifically oriented people think that's what's wrong with philosophy. You guys are still talking to Plato. And I think this is what's wonderful about philosophy. We're yeah. still in dialogue with Plato, Aristotle, Hume, yeah. Locke, Mill, and all these other people. I'm having, as Seneca would put it, conversations with the most interesting minds in the world every day, every time that I open a book.
1: I think that, there, I will tell you, I mean, just as an aside, I think that there is an academic paper in this point about eudaimonisms.
0: Yeah, possibly. Um, right.
1: Because I, don't, I can't think of too many people I've heard say, talk about this this way and say, look, you know, um, excellence and flourishing can mean very different things, and, and, and maybe we're being a bit overly simplistic, and just will be referring to all the Greek ethics as eudaimonist or virtue ethics or whatever. Right. What the Stoics meant by is very different from what Aristotle means, right? And we see it here in this, you know, if you're right, then the Stoics don't need a notion of form or function. In the sense right. that Aristotle does, they simply need to examine sort of common human ways of life, right? Exactly, uh, uh, forms of life. And um, um, now, let me just ask you one last thing. Um, and I I, 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 I don't want to bring him up, but I will. I mean, can you careful be careful because we're, we're already beyond the hour? I think. So. Sam Harris. Sam Harris. Oh gosh. Yes. Um, what about him? Well. It sounds to me like one way, of, one way of describing what you're saying is that we can simply sort of read um, our ethics off of an empirical uh, investigation of uh, how actual people do well and do poorly. And isn't that simply what he says, that, um, that we can get our ethics without doing much philosophy just simply by looking empirically at human life? And uh, since we're not talking about excellence in a metaphysical sense, but we're just talking about, you know, what tends to create well-being as he calls it and what doesn't. um, So so are we perhaps being unfair to him? No way. (laughs) So maybe differentiate for a second. Why aren't you saying that? Yeah.
0: So here's why. Um, There's two reasons why I think that Sam is mistaken. One is, and I've talked and written about this, before so we can probably add add links and I'm going to be very brief about it Um, one reason is because he has an agenda. He wants to say this is a matter of science, not just empirical evidence. It's about science. Mm. But he defines, right at the beginning of his book, The Moral Landscape, he defines science in such an extensive way that no philosopher of science would actually recognize. That basically may, makes it coincide with the totality of human uh, reason and or empirically informed reasoning. right? And so that, if you follow him there... Uh, the fact that later this afternoon I'm going to go downtown Manhattan taking the, the Q Subway and then getting off at a particular stop, that means I'm doing science because I'm doing empirically uh, you know, informed reasoning. So that, that, that to me is just ridiculous. It's like, sorry, I'm not, not, I'm not going to go there. So that's one, re- that's one trivial reason why he's wrong. A more interesting reason is that I think uh, ethics – underdetermined sorry is underdetermined is underdetermined by the empirical evidence by by science quote-unquote
1: so the very fact is that why that is is that why you're ecumenical precisely because that's right precisely because of that right yeah so
0: because science you know if we're talking about actual scientific questions such as uh what's the temperature of the sun at the surface or something like that well there's only one answer there it's not you're not gonna have you know, uh, you may or may not know it. You may or may not be able to determine it with precision, but there is going to be one answer in the story. No such thing will ever be the case for human yeah. ethics. Yeah, yeah. Right? You're not going to be able to, say, uh, to read off the et- ethics straight out of facts about human beings, which is what he wants to do. Now, does that mean that the empirical facts are not relevant? Of course they're relevant because, right. as I just said, ethics is actually – how we behave in a society and society is structured in a certain way. It's a result of certain aspects of human nature. All of those are empirical facts uh, to use. A, I can't believe I'm going to use Sartre here, but to use Sartre's uh, you know, existential terminology, there is a facticity about life. There is a number of conditions of things that constrain what you want to do, what you can't do. Right. And those things, you cannot ignore them. You can't ignore the facticity. And in fact, the facticity is obviously going to inform, our ethics but the very fact that you, we can have thriving and flourishing people who consider themselves kantian uh you know Mill, the uh, utilitarians epicureans syrnaics uh, stoics etc 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 buddhists christians jews all of that sort of stuff that means to me that there is no univocal answer that the empirical evidence Grossly, to some extent, under it constrains yeah. the ethics, but it there, doesn't.
1: There it doesn't are negative implement. conditions, but there are no sufficient conditions in a sense, exactly. right? I mean, there there are clearly, as you point out, with Nazism, uh, ethical systems that that are interfering of all flourishing, right? Correct. as is commonly understood. Um, but 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 there are no there. There's nothing that there's nothing that's required, so to speak, um, um, in a positive way. Exactly, uh, which uh, means uh, you're not yeah. going to have scientific answers to moral questions.
0: Now, does that mean that empirical evidence in general? What I think, again, I think, unlike yeah. them, I think that empirical evidence yeah. is much, much broader than science. Yeah. Yeah. But does that mean that empirical evidence in general and even science in particular aren't going to be helpful to to uh, clarify moral questions? Of course, they are. Yes. yes but but no, but that 's yeah. not but no moral philosopher I think would disagree I mean that my example i, I believe I, I brought up this example when I reviewed uh, sam 's book in, in Skeptic magazine i said look uh, let 's say we 're having a discussion about the permissibility of abortion, and we agree that abortion is going to be permissible up until the moment in which the fetus uh, begins to feel pain and and then and not afterwards, unless there are ex- extreme circumstances such as uh, endangering the life of the mother. Okay. Well, clearly science can tell us when is that moment? When, when is it that the, what's our best guess as, uh, in, in terms of, you know, the developmental biology of the human fetus for when that happens, that clearly is a scientific answer, which is very useful to the ethical debate, but we've already decided that there is a criterion there that is clearly not empirical. It's like, Oh, yeah. okay. I, I'm, I'm, we're going to agree that pain is the criterion to go by. But, but somebody goes, well, why pain? Uh, yeah, and, you know, yeah. why, why why pain in a fetus as opposed to something else? Yeah. Uh, and those answers, those questions are not going to be – you're not going to do an experiment that tells you why pain.
1: Yeah. It sounds to me like in, to a certain extent you agree with the evidence base that, 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 that Harris thinks ethics rests upon. The mistake is all the, on the moral philosophy side that he just thinks it entails utilitarianism. And, That's right, And you think it clearly obviously doesn't entail just utilitarianism. Really doesn't. I mean, um, look, if,
0: if we're talking about uh, <laughs> making a connection between the empirical world and, and, and ethics, hey, the Stoics did exactly that. When yeah. we talked about Stoicism and we said that the yeah. Stoics were, were using, were studying uh, what they call physics and what they call logic in the service of ethics, right? In the service of their, their study of how to live your, your life. By physics, they meant all the natural sciences and metaphysics. Yeah, why? Right. Because they thought that understanding how the world works is obviously relevant yeah. to, um, to ethics. Yeah. But why logic also? Because they also understood that, yes, but you also have to reason well about that evidence. Otherwise, you're not going to come up with, to, 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 you know, with correct right. conclusions or workable right. conclusions. Right. So, so they said, if the idea that Sam has been proposing is simply that uh, moral philosophy can meaningfully be informed by empirical evidence by how the world works well my friend people have done that for at least close to two and a half millennia yeah so that, yeah. you know yeah. it's not it's nothing new under the sun in that sense
1: yeah yeah well masero uh we did it again um, <laughs> um no um really interesting and it went in directions i did not expect um um uh, I mean gosh we went all the way from modern biology to uh, whether or not there's a single eudaimonism or several so I mean I think that's really interesting uh, thank you very much and uh, it was con- a pleasure continued success with your book which I understand is really uh, doing you. very well and I yes, encourage people you. to get it and uh, there'll be a link of course and um, I will see you next time around these parts
0: all right all thank right, you, my friend.
1: thank you bye bye
0: Thanks for listening to Meaning of Life TV. You can help support this content by remembering to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to all Meaning of Life episodes or to a specific program by going to our subscribe page at meaningoflife.tv slash subscribe. There you can sign up for podcast downloads via iTunes or Stitcher, or you can subscribe to our email and we'll send you an alert every time we post a new episode.